Welcome to the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast. I'm your host, Zachar Ness, and in each episode, we highlight Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places. This podcast is brought to you by the American Forest Resource Council, supporting responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest. Learn more at amforest.org. We're also supported by Visit Tillamook Coast, a land of ocean and forest just an hour from the Willamette Valley, that this winter is stressing the importance of being aware of the king tides that will hit Oregon's coastal beaches this coming November, December, and January. The tides can be extremely dangerous and require extra caution from visitors. We'll talk more about king tides just a little bit later in the show. Finally, the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department is asking Oregonians to unlock their creativity with poetry, drawings, photos, and songs inspired by the state's most beautiful places. You can submit your work as part of the Oregon State Parks Centennial Creative Challenge. It's all part of honoring 100 years of state parks in Oregon, and you can find out more about it at stateparks.oregon.gov. All right, in today's episode, we're talking about the arts of wilderness cooking. We'll talk about the bounty that you can forage and harvest from Oregon's outdoors and some mouth-watering ways to cook up fish, mushrooms, and game over a fire or camp stove. But first, here's some guitar music to get us rolling. Right, in today's episode and in celebration of Thanksgiving, I've got a really fun interview all about harvesting the bounty you can find in Oregon's outdoors and more importantly, how to cook it up. Unfortunately, I am a notoriously suspect chef when it comes to camp cooking, so I enlisted the help of an expert who's going to bring us through her love of wilderness cooking and give us some great recipes for mushroom, fish, and game. So here is that interview. All right, well, in today's episode, it's going to be a fun one and one that I guarantee is going to make you hungry. And that's because I'm joined by two of my favorite people to follow on social media, especially when it comes to all things culinary. Kayla Sulak is an outdoors photographer, videographer, forager, and wilderness cook who takes all the things you can find in Oregon from mushrooms to fish to game and creates some mouth-watering delicacies. You can find her on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram sharing her creations. Hey, Kayla, thanks for being here. Hey, Zach. Thank you so much for having us. We're also joined by her boyfriend, Mason Krupka, who bags a lot of the fish and game that Kayla uses to cook. So Mason, welcome. Hey, thank you. So to start off, I know you guys are basically always outdoors, constantly hiking, camping, hunting, fishing. So where are you talking to me from right now? And uh, what are you guys up to today? Yeah, we are currently, um, we're hanging out in Sisters. That's kind of our our home base amidst all of our explorations around uh, mostly Oregon. But yeah, so we're, we're hanging out in Sister today. We've been camping out up in the snow. Gotcha. And you live, uh, do you live in your truck full time, your van full time? Like, yeah, we are the, the, the lifestyle. Totally. We we're yeah, we're pretty much uh truck slash SUV livers full time. 
Yep, tent during the summer. Yeah, a tent when it's warm enough. Yeah. <laughs> Does the, is that nice being so close to the outdoors uh, every day? Like, do you just wake up and... Because, you know, a lot of people wake up and they're just like, man, you know, I got to jump on the computer, like, do all this. Like, is it nice being that close to the outdoors all the time? Is that a big part of it? Yeah, I yeah, I would say so. We, we Central Oregon especially is a pretty great place to be because you don't have to drive very far to get um, out into the national forest and into the mountains doing it in a, in a big metro area like portland would be a different story but yeah here in central oregon we got the setup it's pretty great well it sounds great you are definitely one of the people that i'm super jealous of um, just <laughs> always you. out there and that is that's not true of that many people because i get a pretty fun job too but all right so in this ep- in this episode kayla is going to share a few of her secrets about how to take the bounty of oregon's outdoors and turn it into a meal So Kayla, to start, I'm curious how you got started on this path because your social media posts really combine two things, you know, getting out there, fishing, hunting, just getting after it, and then using whatever you find to create these really interesting, delicious dishes that just look super hard to make. And I'm always jealous of that because that just looks so tasty. So my question is kind of which came first? Were you a chef first and then you added fishing and foraging? Or were you an outdoors person first who kind of looked around and was like, hey, you know, I can actually make food out of this. So so take me through that journey. Yeah, I I would say I was a I was a started as a chef. I've always been cooking and baking growing up, and I really was the one doing most of the like grocery shopping, planning and stuff um, growing up. Uh, so so yeah, started as a chef and in college I started hiking and camping and that really took off like I just wanted to hike all the time um, which progressed into uh, yeah road tripping and starting to be based out of uh, my vehicle as I'm traveling and then I didn't want to spend all my money um, just dining out all the time because it's like the kind of part of the lifestyle is like saving money and using our resources for for adventuring so anywhere that I can save money that probably contributed a lot to me deciding to just start cooking all my own meals. Um, and then, yeah, then I got into fishing and foraging and that just kind of like brought the whole, the whole equation together. Oh, that's really interesting. So a lot of like picking up the, the, the outdoor cooking was just based on wanting to save money. It wasn't like necessarily like, Oh, this is going to taste better. or This is going to be like a cool thing. It was like, yeah, just, this is, it's cheaper to do it this way. Would you say that's right? And I mean, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, it, yeah, it's like, if, if you want to, have some good food. It's like, you got to cook it yourself. There is no, nowhere to dine. So it's, yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. I guess when the, I guess when the grocery store is, you know, three or four hours away, then, you know, it's a lot, it almost as easier to just have your own little self-contained system. Yeah. I mean, we're big foodies. So like we want to eat well and we cook our meals. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. That makes sense. So the most basic question I have is, you know, so you get your game, you got your mushrooms, What's your, what's, which heat source do you like to cook on most? Are you somebody that cooks mainly on a campfire or a camp stove? I've seen pictures of you doing both. So do you have a preference or what, yeah. which one do you like between the two? Um, I'd say we, we honestly mostly use, um, use our camp stove just for quickness. But, um, once we have the campfire going, it, that, it, it's like it's hard to pick i mean once the campfire is going it just makes sense to cook on the fire uh you save you know and it's like where as, as opposed to buying butane and having to be stocked on butane you got the fire the heat source right there so 
I mean, it depends. It's kind of, it's definitely both. It's hard to pick. Gotcha. You don't have a preference between one or the other. It's you can, you can kind of work, work on both. Cause I feel like I I'll use a campfire in like special occasions, but it's a little harder for me to pull off um, compared to like you're saying it's, it's, a lot more simple with the with the camp stove is that kind of the same for you or yeah you yeah the the using the stove is really is very really simple whereas with campfire cooking um you have to get your coal heat just right when you're cooking and and yeah we don't cook over open flame it's cooking over coals really when i say campfire cooking so there is like a whole strategy to the campfire cooking well what's uh the biggest part of your outdoor kitchen so you know I'm, you know, you got your setup. So what are the main pots and pans that are the most helpful? Like what, like what, what's the setup yeah. for, for getting it done? We're all about cast iron. It's really versatile. You can throw it on the stove or on the campfire. Um, I have an eight inch and a 10 inch skillet. And then I recently got a Dutch oven. They each have lids that fit them. And so pretty much revolving around the cast iron pan setup, which they do take, um, you, you, you know, you can't leave it out or it'll rust things like that. So mm. yeah, they're kind of high maintenance, but definitely preferred. Like I, I don't think I'll cook on any other pans now that I'm very devoutly a cast iron user. Gotcha. Do you cook pretty much? Cause I've seen a whole bunch of your meals. A lot of your pictures are just the cast iron with the meal inside it. Do you end up like cooking just about everything in there? Yeah, yeah, and I'm a big fan of the like a a one pan meal if I can do everything in one pan. Uh, whether that's taking something out of the pan to cook the next thing, it's kind of like usually I'm I'm a one pan meal kind of person. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, um, no, that's save dishes. I love that for yeah, I love that for simplicity's sake too. Because yeah. you know, especially like oh man, I just even when I go car camping, like all of the cookware just tends to like descend into like total chaos and just, just keeping organized has got to be a big thing. So one pan meals sound like a winner. All right. So do you have a favorite combination of, of spices or oils or anything that is like particularly good for mushrooms, fish in, in the game, like stuff that you find yourself like going back to over and over that you'd suggest people, people have like just offhand. Our most common things are, are pretty basic, like salt, pepper, garlic, we we use a lot of paprika. Smoked paprika seems to to seems to appear um, quite a bit, and white wine. But as far as the cooking oils, it it depends with mushrooms. Um, butter butter is better. Um, whereas with trout, I really prefer to use bacon fat. Actually, so we use a lot of bacon fat, a lot of butter, and then I always have like just basic vegetable oil around for you know if I need something neutral for frying, but. All right. Well, so in this episode, we're going to talk about how both to harvest that organ bounty and then cook it. So a lot of the stuff we'll talk about is definitely stuff the average person could get. You know, we're going to cover mushrooms, fish and game that just about anybody who put a little research and time into it could get. So we're not going for the exotic. We're going for kind of the staples of organs outdoors. And the idea here is maybe to demystify something that can seem complicated, like cooking what you brought home from the forest and how to make it taste better. So that's going to be the goal of this. Kaylin Mason, what suggestions do you have about getting started with this? Because I'll be honest, like I'll look at some of the meals you put together and I'm just like, yeah, no chance. There's <laughs> That's just not happening. <laughs> so does it require a lot of 
prep work, a lot of trial and error. What suggestions would you have for people that were interested in cooking better kind of wilderness meals uh, the way that you do and and harvest and foraging? Practice, practice, definitely practice and getting out there. It's like I didn't definitely didn't just one day start cooking and was getting it all right. Like there's there's definitely a lot of trial and error, like a lot of things we cook at once and it's like, okay, we did that. Like, I don't think I want to do that again. Or, you know, you get, you find your thing. That's like, that's really good and do it over and over. Um, and as far as actually getting out there to find mushrooms and, and stuff, it, it really is like, just get out there and try to learn. I, I would say is like the, the fundamental. Yeah. Thing. Recommendation I would have is don't buy all the fancy expensive gear to start out and get what is just the simple basic line of I or list of items together and then go try it and then just keep on building your own collection of wilderness tools and stuff and just go through trial and errors until you can actually start getting it right because it doesn't take expensive stuff to get it done. Totally. You don't need the best fanciest gear. It's just mostly about really getting out there, learning and practicing and just kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, before, before we get rolling on this, cause we're going to kind of hit on mushrooms and fish and some game. I like what you mentioned about, you know, both saving money and not getting fancy stuff. So like if you're practiced the way you guys are, like you have you found that you can really feed yourselves like to a good extent with stuff you're foraging and just cooking out there definitely <laughs> yeah it's a big filler for us like um when there's especially during the game hunting seasons it's like we we almost don't buy any meat at the grocery store for like months on end like so in terms of like our protein yeah that that's it's a huge yeah, provider of food for us that like we still, you know, buy stuff, other stuff at the grocery store, but like everything's kind of tied together with like our, our meat and mushrooms. Yeah. Just... And do you feel more connected to your food that way? And like, that sounds like kind of a, almost a, a hippy dippy thing to say, but like, you know, I go to the grocery store, I get ground beef, I cook it up. Like, I'm not thinking about it that much. Do you find that, you know, when you're, you know, harvesting and then, you know, cleaning and doing like, does that whole process make you feel more part of, I don't know what you eat? Yeah, uh, yeah. It uh, definitely makes me feel just closer to the nature in general. I get to see the animals or fish traits and stuff and actually see them alive and actually be in their own environment. Whereas a feedlot cattle that I bought a steak from at the store, you know, you're never going to see that. Yeah, animal. you didn't even. Yeah, <laughs> we really get to see it from nature when it was perspective, yeah, yeah alive in nature to um, harvesting it, cleaning it, cooking it. And to me, it, it I feel a, a strong need to kind of honor our um our our game and fish with something memorable that makes me you know feel like like harvesting that animal like it was for a, a good reason especially when when you turn it into some like really awesome meal you know <laughs> yeah yeah no that's awesome all right so we're gonna get into it we are gonna talk about how to find each of these items and then some ideas for how to cook it i don't know if kayla's gonna give us all of her secrets for all of her best stuff but she's gonna give us a couple i promise so we're gonna start with mushrooms and then move on to fish and wrap up with game so you guys ready for that we are ready i'm ready
All right, so it's late autumn right now in Oregon, and that means it's very much game and mushroom hunting season. So we're going to talk about two of Oregon's most famous types of fungi to get started. Now, normally I'm going to ask them to talk about how they harvest each, but the first one is golden chanterelles. And we've talked a lot on this podcast uh, and very recently about this. So Kayla, assume that we've scored our chanterelles. We found them in the forest, or maybe we got them from a friend. So what is your first recipe that you're going to recommend to go with chanterelles? What would you do with them? My favorite recipe so far, and we've cooked a lot of things with chanterelles. Um, my, my favorite so far is called Hungarian mushroom soup. It's basically like a cream of mushroom soup. Um, but the, the Hungarian mushroom soup is... Um, it has like dill, lemon, paprika, white wine, um, cream, and that just really showcases the chanterelle flavor. Like it's got, I don't like to overpower chanterelles because they have kind of a this subtle flavor that's like if you bury it in a bunch of strong like spices or like a really rich sauce, you're not going to taste the chanterelles. Whereas this recipe kind of has a lot of flavors going on and you still can taste the chanterelles. And yeah, so that's definitely my favorite recipe. All right. So Hungarian mushroom soup. That sounds so good. And it's really like a, it's, it's kind of a cream of mushroom soup with some, some flavors thrown in there. Like that's the basic way to describe it. Totally. If you were to Google Hungarian mushroom soup, there's a lot of recipes for it surprisingly um when you cut up your chanterelles like how how uh, this is something i'm always curious about like how small do you get them do you, do you have big strips of of the mushroom do you get them pretty small like how do you handle that it depends if for something like soup i would probably go small um for this hungarian mushroom soup i think some people like to even take like an immersion blender or some like a food processor and and blend it into a full creamy soup but we don't have that kind of stuff in the woods so it's like if if i want it to be um kind of creamy without blending it i'm gonna chop it up into small pieces if i'm just frying the mushrooms and putting them on a steak i might go bigger just like a rough chop um, gotcha okay and so if people wanted to do this is it easiest to just google hungarian mushroom soup or do you have a specific recipe somewhere uh yeah i do let me pull that up i can give you the exact one that i like that too yeah it's uh the modern proper.com hungarian mushroom soup okay. from the modern proper that's the recipe that i use <laughs> it's a good one all right okay so chanterelles are kind of the autumn mushroom so why don't we talk about morels up next which are kind of a spring mushroom so first off what do you guys like about morels and without revealing secret spots you know how do you guys typically go about finding them i know you guys find a lot because i i should also mention that you have like a little delivery service and yes. sell uh morels because i bought them and they're fantastic um <laughs> so yeah so start off with with you know kind of where you get them and how you do that and then your business a little bit totally um so morels are a mycorrhizal fungus which in layman's terms means that they are um morels are reliant on sort of like a nutrient swap with the trees and plants around them and so this their mycelium is living in most forests um but what what causes them to fruit is when their their trees or plants that they're partnering with for nutrients once those trees or plants start struggling or aren't providing them the nutrients that they need 
that causes morels to fruit when the the environmental conditions are just right. Um, they fruit to spread their spores in search of like a new place to grow where they're going to get their nutrients that they needed from the trees. So in short, we, we look for them around um, like fir trees around in central Oregon is, is a big one. Like they're associated with fir trees. So struggling fir trees usually is, is where you're going to find morels around here um, in the Valley. It, they're associated with some other trees like cottonwood and apple trees. Um, but yeah, so around here, we we go straight to the, the fir trees where they're struggling. That's why a lot of people search for morels in like wildfire areas and um, mm. places that have been logged. And yeah, um, so we, we do commercial foraging. I have a commercial foraging permit, um, which allows me to gather more than the personal use quantity and go um, sell them, which for me, it's like, I just want to be hunting for the morels and I'm, we're pretty good at finding them. We've got the science down. So it's just, it's nice that I can go, you know, just mushroom hunt my heart out, get all the mushrooms (laughs) because that's really what I enjoy. And then it's like, okay, we've got too many mushrooms, like more than we can eat anyway. So we, we get to go sell them and morels have a very unique flavor that's really hard to put into words but um people who have had morels you know know what i'm talking about and when it's morel season like there's a lot of people that are really excited okay so say you've got you know i do want to ask about that that taste with morels too because like again anybody who's had a morel knows what you're talking about i think they're probably the tastiest of the wild mushrooms that i've had anyway they they're just always really really good almost no matter what you do with them yeah how, how do you like to cook them we'll get to a little recipe that you have on here but you know what are you typically doing with them like what's the simplest way to use morels we'll talk a little bit about the kind of the best technique i think with frying mushrooms is to um you start with a dry saute in the pan just to kind of sweat some of the moisture out um then finish with like butter and salt uh and there's something about when you sweat a little bit of the moisture out before you add in the butter that really helps them cook best. Yeah, they need a little salt to kind of bring out their flavor. And then from there, I'll just eat them right out of the pan or put them on a steak maybe if I'm just trying to be really simple. Mm, gotcha. That's a great idea. I think that's mostly what I, I think. Honestly, like I was going to the morels that I bought from you, I think it was last summer. I think we had them on a rafting trip. Yeah. And I think we just we just ended up kind of eating them. Like I was going to totally. put them on the mushroom, but like me and my daughter were just like, wow, these are good. And so we were just like plucking them out of the pan and just eating most of them like that. So yeah. I don't know how many mushrooms you could do that with and be really happy, but morels. <laughs> but yeah. But all right. So you have uh, you did mention a recipe that you wanted to highlight here. So what what's your favorite way uh, to do morels and what's your recipe for us? Yeah, my my favorite, not to give two cream of mushroom soup recipes in a row, but I, that is what I'm doing. It's my, my favorite with morels is cream of mushroom soup. Really simple, like pretty much no, no like frilly spices or anything. It's like a basic like broth, cream, morels, salt. I like to put a little white wine in there. Like, yeah, salt and pepper and just serve it in a bread bowl preferably because when you get down to the bottom of the, the soup, like eating that morel soup soaked bread is just like divine um that's definitely <laughs> my my favorite thing to do with them um 
aside from so it's mostly a cr- it's mostly a cream and a broth and then you're cutting you're dicing them up and kind of putting all that together yeah yeah so it's like starts with starts with fried morels fried the morels with a little butter and salt and then add um like a little bit of white wine and then your broth and cream and yeah just make sure it's got the right amount of salt and pepper um i might i mean i might put in like a little dash of italian season or some italian seasoning or something if if, if i want to spruce it up but it doesn't need it um yeah very basic what kind it, of broth what kind what kind of broth do you usually use usually i use chicken broth unless i happen to have some broth that i made myself just like chicken broth or vegetable broth something very gotcha. light and neutral yeah well i like that because it sounds easy like when you describe that I'm, I'm thinking in my head i'm like i think maybe i could pull that off yeah like i'm not a <laughs> i'm a decent chef at home like i have to cook for my kids and stuff and so i, I like have i know what the differences between broth and like when you describe that i'm like maybe that's in reach <laughs> yes it's very simple it's not a lot of ingredients it takes like 10 minutes to make <laughs> okay so we're gonna take a quick break to hear from our sponsors uh, when we return, we'll talk about the art of fishing and how to cook that fish in a tasty way. So that's when we return. This message is brought to you by Visit Tillamook Coast. The Pacific Ocean's king tides of winter are one of the most impressive sights on the Oregon coast, but they can also be a deadly hazard. Visit Tillamook Coast wants visitors who head out to the beach to be aware of the king tides that are expected to hit coastal areas November 24th through the 26th, December 22nd through the 24th, and January 20th through the 22nd. When king tides hit, it's important for visitors to observe waves from a distance. Normally, when visiting the ocean, the big rule of thumb is don't turn your back on the ocean. In the case of king tides, however, you don't want to go anywhere near the ocean. Three guidelines to focus on include staying off beaches during king tide events, staying off low-lying areas such as jetties or parking areas close to the beach, and staying off cliffs that can suddenly crumble when hit by powerful waves. For more information on king tides, visit www.oregonkingtides.net. Once again, www. Oregon King Tides, all one word, dot net. I'm Sarah Gafori with American Forest Resource Council, and we're proud to sponsor the Explore Oregon podcast. I moved to Oregon because of my love for the outdoors. It also inspired me to go to law school and pursue a career in environmental law. At AFRC, I have the pleasure of advocating for science-based forest management throughout the West. Protecting our public lands helps achieve important conservation goals, including clean air, clean water, and robust wildlife habitat. It also helps provide renewable, climate-friendly wood products that we all depend on. We strongly believe that active management of our public lands is the right thing to do for the environment, for the economy, and for our future. Learn more about AFRC at amforest.org. All right, welcome back. So next, let's move into fishing. 
Now, Kayla, I wanted to ask you how you got into fishing because I remember you saying that it wasn't really something that you, I don't know, grew up with or you weren't necessarily into it right away and you kind of came to it a little bit later. So what was the inspiration to pick it up and do as much fishing as you currently do? Um, yeah, I did a tiny bit of fishing as a kid. So I at least uh, when I did start getting into it in the last few years, I was like, okay, I, I've casted a fishing pole before, like, you know, like, I, I think I can learn this. Um, I, I went, I went to up to Paulina Lake with, uh, some friends and they were fishing and I was, they actually caught a couple fish and it was just like, man, like, I think I, like, I could do this. I, I, I kind of, I got a little ahead of myself and I went and bought a, an annual fishing license. And then it was like, okay, so I got my license. Like now I got to learn how to actually go fishing. So, um, a friend gave me a fishing pole and some tackle when they, when they heard that I wanted to learn to me, it was like, I was already like living out of my truck for several years, doing a lot of the cooking. I was taken off with the cooking. I was familiar with like mushroom hunting. And uh, so aside from mushrooms, I was like, I don't, you know, have any, like I wanted to get more wild food in my mm -hmm. recipes. Like I, everything it's like one of these days I'm going to write a book and I wanted to have like some wild food to make it like, you know, kind of Oregon forage, like, kind of woven into a lot of my recipes so it's like fish is a good place to start um so I, I got into trout fishing um took me like two weeks to catch my first fish like fishing every day not catching anything for two weeks before <laughs> I finally figured it out and then um yeah I'm a big backpacker so like now I can take my fishing pole up to all these awesome lakes that I hike to and like because I started realizing like all those lakes are most of those lakes are stocked so it kind of added um it added to my, my already, you know, hiking adventures to be able to, uh, go fishing on my, my backpacking trips. And, uh, yeah, just kind of took off from there. Yeah. Cause you, you do a lot of fishing at this point. And I totally agree. Like at this point, it's difficult for me to convince myself I want to go on a backpacking trip unless there's some fishing involved. It just <laughs> adds so, so much to the experience. Totally. Um, at this point, I like, are you guys like, th like, do you pick your backpacking destinations more on quality of fishing or quality of scenery at this point? Well, that depends. Mason would probably say he wants, he, he wants to catch the <laughs> yeah. big fish. Um, I want to catch the big ones. <laughs> so if I want to convince him to go backpacking with me, it's like, I'll, I'll pick a lake where I know I've caught some bigger fish. A lot of the lakes have like really small <laughs> fish. So it, it, but aside from that, I, I like, yeah, I love just photography and like enjoying the views. So, I mean, I'm usually, I'm usually going for scenery. Um, and, but yeah, I don't know. I, I go up to Washington a lot. They have a much better uh, like lake stocking program. So sometimes it's like, you know, like I've been trying to go catch golden trout up there. So if I'm going after a certain, like, you know, it, it kind of depends, like both really. <laughs> yeah. Scenery okay, and gotcha. of fishing. <laughs> In Washington, that's 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 interesting. What makes Washington lakes better? Like, are you saying that they just are more consistently stocked, and like you're you, you find like you're catching fish more often? They have a better their website. Um, yeah, their website makes it really easy to figure out um, what the lakes have been stocked with, and when they were stocked, and what kind of trout they were stocked with. I feel like it's just a slightly less user friendly to figure that out um, with Oregon fish and wildlife but 
Uh, the trout over there, I've seen that they actually seem to not just stalk the rainbows and cutthroats. They're actually taking more time in the gene lines of their fish. So you are catching more brilliant fish that you'd never have seen in Oregon. Yeah, they have West Slope cutthroat there. We don't really have them in Oregon. So. Yeah, they're really Different brilliant. Kinds of trout. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, I like this. I like this. We're putting the Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife on blast here. So <laughs> <laughs> they need to... They need to get on their game. That's right. Basically what <laughs> <I'm saying here. laughs> okay, so we've been talking about trout here, and I like that because trout are in so many places. Like, you know, Detroit Lake has 100,000 trout stocked in there, but you can also go up to, you know, the high mountain lakes like Santium and Pamelian, places like that. So you can kind of catch them in a ton of places in Oregon or rivers and creeks too. Yeah. And they're definitely the simplest. So if you want to get into catching and cooking salmon, that's like a whole different world. There's a lot more involved. So we're going to stick with trout here. And the pretty common ones, there's rainbow and brook trout, uh, which have, you know, it's a lot of fun chasing everywhere from, you know, like I said, Detroit Lake up to the Alpine Lakes, the big Cascade Wilderness areas. So to start, Kaylin Mason, I'll be honest, like, when I'm fishing, I just kind of huck out spoons and jigs and stuff like that. Uh, when I'm going after trout, I keep it pr pretty simple. Uh, what advice do you have on just bringing home rainbow or, or brook trout from the places we're talking about? What's your, what's your setup typically for these kind of fishing trips? Definitely depends what kind of water you're fishing. Uh, up at the high lakes specifically, uh, I if I'm just trying to hurry up and catch some a, a fish for dinner uh my, my favorite is honestly power bait it's kind of like the low brow you know it's like yeah. set up in a lot of of anglers eyes but power bait um and using a split shot to sink it like floating power bait with a split shot to sink it and so you're fishing like kind of the, the bottom of the lake with power bait that that's usually kind of a no-brainer but um everywhere else we use a lot of lures and yeah, like spinners and little like feathery weighted like casting jigs but what do you think mason yeah i'd say just take a look at the water that you're fishing and if there's fish that rising at the surface try to figure out what they're eating if they're not rising to the surface look around for minnows or something because they're probably eating under the surface and just try to match that natural color or shape or something if you've got flies and lures just try to get the closest to what they're eating that's really where i pick up my most success during the year and just yeah i yeah. mean if you're not catching something on one setup then just keep switching till you find the right color or the right yeah shine or whatever the totally. fish are looking for it depends so. on whether yeah the fish are eating or yeah. spawning and where they're at in the water yeah, yeah. There's always a way to entice a fish, but there's a lot of wrong ways to do it and <laughs> yeah. one right way usually. <laughs> so yeah, just keep switching it up. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, what about cooking up trout? I mean, they they have like a little bit of a so-so reputation, I think. I feel like people are like, eh, trout's fine. Um, yeah. But, you know, what do you, what do you think about eating trout? Like, like, do you like it? Is it high up there? Like, have you been able to find ways to make it tasty and interesting? Um. Yeah, it was a lot more exciting to eat trout when I first got into fishing, and like, uh, we've we've cooked so much trout now, we do get a little tired of it. Um, if you're <laughs> if we're on a backpacking trip, I, I would say that's a different story because it's like you're exhausted, you only have the food that you brought on your back. So if you can add like some trout to your meal, it really you know brings the meal together and is delicious. But yeah, we we kind of are you know I would say Mason is 
definitely he, I'm kind of over he's it. He's like yeah, over I've, trout. I've but... been born and raised on trout, so I've <laughs> yeah. had yeah, so much of it in my life. I pretty much have to smoke it at this point yeah, to make it edible. <laughs> we really like we smoke it out in the woods. We do like a little rock chimney thing with and get like hardwood chips or pellets or whatever, and we like smoking it with like a a brown sugar brine because it it it's almost like candied trout when it's mm, smoking. Okay, but. Yeah, I, I would say, aside from that, my favorite recipe so far is to put it in fish curry. Like, I, I mean, I, I also just love, like, curry and, a, like, Asian recipes, so um, so that's a winner to me. But, yeah, fish curry is the way to go with trout, If aside from smoking. Okay, so when you say a fish curry, like, is it easy to throw that into Google and say, and, and come up with some pretty good stuff? Do you have some favorite kind of curry, or, like, what specifically makes it good? Yeah, I do have a favorite recipe. Um, it's on IndianHealthyRecipes.com. Uh, Swaths, I don't know how to pronounce this. Swathi's Recipes is the name of his website. Okay. Yeah, so he's got a fish curry recipe on there that's got like a little bit of coconut milk. It's like red curry, a lot of spices and butter and everything. Um, yeah, shallots and it, I, it really kind of adds like a wow factor to trout since we are a little tired of eating it <laughs> gotcha all right well for us as more basic folks like you know i mean i again i'll go backpacking catch some trout what have you found is just the simplest most user-friendly easy way to make them at least kind of good like 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 is there one real simple way like totally. trying it in yeah yeah i would say um if you just fry it with uh butter and then add like uh make a little pan sauce when you're done frying it with like a little squeeze of lemon and some white wine salt so like butter lemon white wine like very basic fry it and then yeah just kind of like whip all that in the pan super basic and and it tastes gourmet like you feel fancy and it's it's got like three ingredients (laughs) yeah and that's and that's something you could pull off like on a on a backpacking trip Definitely. you know that's that's like that's that's doable because i feel like that's like the gold standard is creating something that's like feels fancy right when you're backpacking <laughs> totally <laughs> okay so the second fish i wanted to talk about might strike listeners as odd but there's a good reason here again for that and that is going to be smallmouth bass now obviously that's not historically a big fish for oregon that's not a glamour fish um, but there are a million places that you can catch it. And in a lot of cases, there are too many smallmouth bass for the ecosystems. In a few places, I'm thinking the John Day River, which we talked about earlier this year, and then the South Umpqua River. Wildlife officials have actually like encouraged people to go out and catch them. They've removed bag limits just because they want to get them out of the ecosystem. There's too many of them. And I just like that idea. I like that you are fishing for a cause and eating them for a cause. Like It <laughs> makes me feel good, as opposed to some other ones. So... You know, Mason, you told me the other day about some really a really fun way to fish for smallmouth. Like you can go on the ODFW website and find a lot of places to do it. And I find that bass are pretty easy to catch Mm -hmm. um, compared to some other fish. But there's one very unique way that we talked about uh, catching them. So out down on the South Umpqua. So can you tell me about that a little bit, Mason? Yeah, so uh, I grew up uh, in West Eugene, so I've done a lot of uh, like pest control, you know, for the carp in the area. They've just destroyed all the rivers over there and kind of done what the smallmouth are doing, overpopulated, killed all the salmon out, and it's just getting atrocious over there. So now that they're opening 
but smallmouth up for unlimited harvest and everything, you're now legally able to use spears and bows. So I'm very interested in getting down there and actually getting on some fish because I've caught a ton of them. And like you said, after a while, it gets a little boring because every time you cast in, you catch another one. And there's a lot of low spots in the Umpqua when the water does lower around June, July. And I think it'd be the perfect place to get in the water and get some spearing going on. It's going to be much more of a challenge than spearing a carp. It's not as big of a fish, but yeah. It's, I mean, every time that I've gone down to the uh, Umpqua in the last few years, it's just more and more smallmouth. You're catching less and less trout, and it's kind of sad to see. So, yeah, I'd love to be mm -hmm. part of that controlling factor of the fish down there. At least try to get a few of them out of the river. And like you said, you get to eat them, so it's a double bonus there. <laughs> so can you describe a little bit what that looks like? Like, I mean, are you, you have like a literal spear, and are you like spearing out of the water? Are you getting into the water? Like, how are you, how are you doing it? Yeah, so it all depends on where the fish are at. Um, at that time of year, they're going to move up to the shallower water, so you really don't have to get in the water to do it. Uh, usually with carp, I would be waiting a little bit just because it's a little easier to get more fish. But with the smallmouth, a lot of the spots that they're in are only a foot deep, and you can see them. It makes fishing for them a little too easy because you know the fish are there. But with a spear, it's going to add that extra, like you got to stalk up on the fish, kind of hide yourself in your own shadow, and then not spook it while you get your spear close to the water. I use a Hawaiian sling style spear, which uh, has a rubber band at the end of it. So you take that and put it in your hand and then you choke up on the spear. And then when you let go of the spear, it's actually got a little bit of propulsion to it. So you're not like stabbing a fish or anything like that. You can actually just let go and it like happens fast. It. Yeah. So yeah, it's not exactly just spearing, you know, straight up like savage ways. Like I'm not just carving a <laughs> stick or anything. It's a three prong um, fish spear. That's a lot of people use them in the tropical places and stuff. So yeah, it's, it's a challenge. I got to say that it's going to be even more challenging with these uh, bass down there, but I'm really looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. So if you don't feel like getting that adventurous with it, uh, what's, what's, what's the kind of the classic ways to catch smallmouth bass? What's the, what's the easiest, you know, most user-friendly ways to do it? Yeah. So usually down there, you see a lot of people just do, using split shot, uh, hook and worm. It's easiest way to catch smallmouth all day long. You're going to catch a lot more of the smaller ones if you're not trying to use bigger bait, but still, it's a blast to just drop worms all day. Um, also down there, I've had uh, really good luck with uh, their pumpkin seed colored jigs. Uh, it's just a plastic jig with a big rubber tail that uh, swirls in the water when it goes down and kind of entices the fish. And the pumpkin seed color is kind of a uh, like light caramel and that. I don't know why that color down there has always been the key, but my dad taught me that trick back in the day and we have caught thousands of those fish off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I mean, smallmouth are fun to catch, whether you're doing it with a spear or, you know, a hook. Um, but what about cooking them and eating them up? I don't think smallmouth necessarily have the great reputation of some other fish. You know, it's, they're sort of like trout in that way. There's a million of them and yeah. they're not necessarily known for flavor, but so how do you use uh, smallmouth when you have all those fish? Yeah. My, my favorite way hands down is fish tacos uh, mm. basically just seasoning it with a little bit of like chili powder and salt and like maybe give it like a squeeze of some lime juice and then throw it into tacos, maybe like put a little slaw, like a slaw kind of mixture in, in the tacos. Um, but uh, for some reason, I, I just think bass are 
like what we've we've compared side by side like trout in fish tacos versus bass in fish tacos and for some reason the bass i just like that's the one time where i actually think like it's flavor kind of comes through and it's good like they do kind of have like a reputation for not being like great eating but like in tacos mm -hmm. i feel differently like they're delicious in tacos yeah yeah no i i totally agree so bring me through it a little bit because i'm uh, the way that i did it was uh when we we're on the John day. We caught, you know, a ton of, of smallmouth, obviously. And so I filleted them. Like I did the whole thing where, you know, did the classic fillet, like even took off the skin and stuff like that. Yeah. Kind of cooked them up and then just sort of like ground them down and then put the, the taco seasoning in there with it. Yeah. Is that how you typically do it with like a little oils that kind of it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I've mostly just caught like pretty small bass that mm -hmm. it you wouldn't be worth filleting them so a lot of the time we'll just i mean scrape the scales off as much as you can and then just fry them with the skin on and bones in and everything and then once they're cooked the bones pick out pretty easily um okay and just yeah and then season it up throw it in tacos really basic yeah yeah okay so i'm, I'm working harder than i need to be working <laughs> what you're saying all right so we got through the the two fish that we were going to talk about um up next we are going to get into hunting and cooking up oregon's wild game so mason i think this is definitely your area of expertise so how long have you been hunting and what do you love about it i've been hunting since i was 11 i'm pretty sure i mean i've always been shooting and stuff before then but we actually got our hunter safety course and started deer hunting then at that point um i did deer hunting for eight years um, after that and then I started getting into the small game and it's just kind of progressed to at this point I've gone to a full small game uh, <laughs> scope in a way and um, as far as what I love about it I mean just getting outside and getting to know what you're eating and should the whole chase and just I don't know it feels more humane to me to just be able to be out there with what I'm harvesting, make the honest decision. And like, you know, it's just, it's more real of an experience and it's, mm -hmm. it's a great way to stay in shape too. I'll get at that. I mean, it's not easy work, but you know, <laughs> when you say small game, um, what, what are you talking about? So give me an example of the stuff that you are mostly been focusing on lately. Well, uh, it's mostly been ducks and waterfowl. That would be my biggest, latest small game is in the last four years, but, uh, quail grouse, um, haven't done any pheasant hunting this year yet, but I'm hoping to get on some, uh, yeah, pretty much yeah, all the pretty game much birds. all of it all the game birds then, rabbits yeah rabbits and jackrabbits uh, yeah jackrabbits i mean which yeah jack whatever's rabbits legal suck. at the time yeah <laughs> i'm in it for yeah, all of it we, yeah well in kayla i've seen you know you you guys bring in uh quite a few game animals so do you skin them and clean them there because i know that that's probably imposing to some people but is that a hard is it easier than expected to just you know do all that that cleaning yourself depends well the yeah the... birds you gotta feather them and some mm. are easier to feather than others like ducks it's really difficult to pluck all the feathers off them they have this downy layer on their skin that's like really hard to get off and they don't have a lot of meat aside from the breast so like sometimes we'll just like mostly we're going for like breast meat if it's really hard to feather or it wasn't like a very clean shot but um some of the birds like grouse and quail are really easy to feather um, so 
yeah we yeah we do it all out there we yeah. we feather them it's uh just try to then... tuck away in the brush where people aren't going to see the the animal that's left behind and we also are conscious that the the other animals out there will be eating any carcass pieces and stuff that we've left behind as well so you got to try to find a place where dogs aren't going to be and things you know less traveled which usually are in our hunting spots anyways we're not around a lot of people but there's some uh, refuges and stuff that won't let you clean on them so you got to pay attention to the oregon legislation <laughs> be on top of that <laughs> Gotcha. All right. Well, we're going to get into some of the stuff specifically. And so Kayla, you told me in advance that the the first game recipe was going to be focused on rabbits, which, which kind of surprised me. So Mason, what are the rules on hunting rabbits and you know, how do you normally do it? Yeah. So rabbits are um, unregulated in Oregon. Um, there's no season, no bag limit. Um, not saying just go out there and shoot them because we all want some rabbits. <laughs> but yeah, the um, it's a lot of walking. I usually am using a 12 gauge, sometimes a 22. And yeah, for rabbits, because we don't have a dog, which kind of makes it a little bit more challenging. It's you just have to put in miles and they're really fast. When you see them, you might only have a second to shoot at them or something. So you're going to have a lot of failure in there. But when success does come, it starts becoming a really, really uh, fun, yeah. fun way of hunting. <laughs> we usually put in like seven to 10 miles if we're like really setting out to for sure get a rabbit. Yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot walking of work. And it's, yeah. yeah, it's very fast once you actually see it. It's, yeah, like you said, you got like like a split second to you know decide if you've got a good chance to get it so yeah. kayla do you do hunt i do do you have the gun and like are you into hunting at this point no, not really i would like to get into it i uh, i i mostly just i run around with mason while he's doing it so i'm very much like involved in you know his hunting adventures a lot of the time um but no i haven't really i had i don't i have not yet officially like done my own hunting so yeah it's okay. yeah it's helpful to have the extra flushing power too of a second person yeah with me. and so. sometimes <laughs> just to have extra eyes like if it's like or with a a bird or rabbit whatever it is like once you shoot it sometimes it's like it's not always easy to find it if it kept running or whatever or went into a bush so it's like to have the extra eyes like I'm usually just kind of like helping with that kind of thing like where to go i'm like the retrieval dog you know <laughs> <laughs> right on well okay so you get the rabbits um in my mind they don't have a ton of meat but am i wrong there yeah they they do have actually quite a bit of meat like we haven't really weighed like how much meat is on the average rabbit but i want to say there's like like on average like what three without the bones at least like what three quarters, three quarters of a pound from, yeah. or something Cotton like tail. they have they do have quite a bit of meat on them yeah okay so what's your what's your favorite recipe um for for rabbits yeah the my favorite recipe that we've tried so far is by uh the famous jacques pepin he he uh he has a recipe for rabbit braised with morels and pearl onions uh, it actually, the, uh, the legs get stewed in like a broth with the morels and the onions and, uh, like, yeah, stewed in a broth, but then the backstrap gets cooked separately with herbs de Provence and like some other stuff. So the backstrap gets cooked separately from the legs, but, um, yeah, it's very, it is kind of a complex recipe. So 
I'm sure some people look mm-hmm. at that and be like, that's way too hard to do in the woods, but like <laughs> delicious, delicious recipe. Yeah. Yeah. And what, what is, I mean, what sticks out about rabbit meats? I mean, I think mo- a lot of people might know, you know, had venison, you know, they've obviously had ground beef and stuff. Um, you know, and like, like, how would you describe rabbit? Like as far as how it tastes? Yeah. Not to be cliche, but it, I really think it tastes like chicken. It's like a, a very <laughs> like, light meat not it has a little bit of a like a wild taste like i I don't Mm -hmm. i hesitate to say gamey it's a little more flavorful than chicken but um yeah and then we always brine pretty much all of our meat but yeah rabbits really benefit from like a brine and a saltwater solution overnight before you cook it it kind of it helps like wash out that kind of gamey taste you know yeah, but, and that's the cottontail she's con- talking about too. The jackrabbit is much right. more like a venison flavor, yeah, but without is... the like gaminess of a buck, it's more like a doe. Yeah, jackrabbit is actually like a red meat, whereas <laughs> cottontail is a white meat. So interesting. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like grouse. Like I grew up hunting grouse. Yeah, and I really a... love. I love. I love that taste, like because it was like sort of like chicken, but it was it was different right. and it had different flavor profiles and stuff. So is it kind of similar to that? That's a perfect comparison. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, a little less right. intense than a grouse on average, but it still has Pretty that comparable. yeah, a little bit more complexity than a farm meat. <laughs> okay, so uh, to round things off, Kayla, the second game meat that you wanted to highlight uh, was birds, including uh, quail and dove. So. Mason, you know, how do you go about hunting those birds? What time of year are they doing? Give me just kind of the lowdown on quail and dove. Yeah, so doves this year, uh, I'm getting my bearings about the doves in Central Oregon because I'm <laughs> kind of new to this area over here. But it seems that they had a really large push in early to mid-September when season first opens up. They're kind of hit or miss and few and far between at this point until the migration comes back. But the doves... Um, they were very reliant on water because they were migrating. So I was hunting along a uh, river up here and they were just freaking everywhere mid-September. Uh, with the quail, they open up a little bit later. It's um, They make a very distinct call, so you can kind of chase around their calls. And we don't, like, like I said earlier, we don't have a dog, so it does make the... Uh, flushing of them a little bit more challenging but uh, just look for bushes and stuff uh, that seem to be enough cover for the birds to be hiding in and then if you walk up to them and you're hearing the quail inside if you rustle that bush most of the time the quail will fly out and that's how you get your shot on them yeah they do really stick to near water usually is our best with a lot of those I birds. think all of the yeah all of yeah. the game birds besides the ones relying on the snowpack the they're like all grouse, next to the water yeah yep. Gotcha. So it's kind of that classic. I mean, you know, I've gone, you know, uh, bird hunting, you know, on Klamath, you know, where you're just kind of tooling around in a boat. And then I've, I've done it the classic way with a dog and stuff like that. But you guys are kind of what are you hiking into, like ponds and lakes and stuff that are out there and then just just kind of doing it like that? Yeah. So it's pretty much just a walk until you find the birds. And so, yeah, you got to find the spots over here. Luckily in Central Oregon, that, well, I mean, not luckily, it's kind of a rest in peace moment for everyone out here because of the lack of water. But for us hunters, they're very accumulated at the few water sources out here. So if you can find any water, you're going to be able to find some small game. And then you just have to put in the time and effort of hiking around to get a shot off at them. It's kind of like rabbits. We have to put in some miles Yeah. and then you see the birds and there's that very fast moment for your chance to get them. But Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Okay, so say you've got some some quail or some dove or whatever you end up getting. Um, what are your favorite ways to, to cook them up, Kayla? Yes. Um, well, for starters, I'll say um, each of these birds do have like a kind of a different kind of meat. Um, for example, quail is more of like a very like mild white meat bird, whereas the um, doves, they have more of like a like a darker meat that actually tastes kind of steak like like they have so they're they have different flavors um in trying to come up with inspiration to cook i discovered hank shaw uh hank shaw is definitely my 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 go-to for like a lot of my wild recipes and i he has got two um there's two different recipes he has that are pretty simple like you just marinate the bird and then slap it on the grill for like eight to 10 minutes and that's it. Um, so like we mm -hmm. I definitely, uh, prefer these, um, really the simple recipes, um, for the birds. So the first recipe is doves a la mancha by Hank Shaw. And that's basically just like, um, paprika, olive oil, bay leaves, salt, pepper. Um, and as the birds are grilling, you just kind of like baste them with some bacon fat Actually, you put the paprika on at the end. So it's basically just like salt, pepper, olive oil, grill them, baste them with a little bacon fat, sprinkle them with paprika. That's it. Like very basic. Um, and then the second recipe is uh, called grilled. Well, this It's called grilled snipe basque, but you don't have to use snipe. Snipe is a kind of shore bird, but um, it works really well with, with all these small birds. And that one is basically just a marinade of like, Lemon juice, garlic, parsley, paprika, salt, olive oil. That's it. And then you just again slap it on the grill until it's cooked. And like I like that. That's that seems pretty simple too. Like it's 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 straightforward. You get the meat, you get some marinade, you put some spices there, yeah. you put it on there, and then go to town. And then you just eat it. And it's yeah, it doesn't take long to cook. They are good. And how, I mean, how do you like the, the wild game? Like, can you taste a significant difference between grocery store meat and the wild meat that you're, that you're getting out in the wild? A hundred percent. The, yeah, all the wild meat. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. every, like you might get quail in one place and then get quail somewhere else. And depending on like what they're eating and where they're living, they'll taste different. And then each bird has its own kind of thing going on with like what, whether it's light meat or dark meat and what it tastes like a lot more variety than what you see in grocery stores. All right. Well, I've been talking to Kayla Sulak and Mason Krupka. So Kayla, real quick, can you plug all the different places where people can find your recipes and sort of follow along on these really fun adventures uh, that you guys are going on? Well, like what's the best place to find your stuff? Definitely. Um, I would say the, the best place is, is on Instagram. It's my dedicated kind of cooking blog of sorts. My my Instagram handle is her dot camp kitchen. So her camp kitchen. Um, all my mushroom trout game etc. Recipes and everything in between are um, photographed and detailed on my Instagram. I do post on Facebook and then. I'm also on YouTube. I don't have, I don't think I have a quick um, YouTube like short link to give. If you find me on Facebook or Instagram, you can find the link to my YouTube there. But we do a lot of, I do some backpacking videos 
and cooking videos on YouTube. Instagram's the best way. It's her.campkitchen. Okay, cool. Well, I appreciate you both coming on here to talk about hunting, fishing, mushroom hunting, and cooking it up. I think I'm very hungry at this point, so I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to raise my game a little bit, but I appreciate you both taking some time to share your expertise. Thank you so much for having us on your show. Thanks, man. All right, well, that's about all the time we have left in today's show. If you liked what you've heard, check out our catalog of more than 60 episodes featuring Oregon's most beautiful and interesting places at statesmanjournal.com explore, along with Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. We'd once again like to thank our sponsors, beginning with the American Forest Resources Council. AFRC supports responsible forestry on public lands throughout the Pacific Northwest for our environment, for our economy, and for the future. Learn more at amforest.org. We'd also like to thank Visit Tillamook Coast. If you want to plan a trip out there, you can check out their outdoor recreation map that shows all the places to hike, swim, boat, and camp. You can find that map at tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. Once again, that's tillamookcoast.com slash recreation hyphen map. And thanks to the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department, which stresses the importance of recreating responsibly and leaving no trace in Oregon's outdoors. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time for the next edition of the Explore Oregon podcast.